Thank you. It's good to see all these young people here. Israel had been in captivity in Babylon. They'd been there for 70 years. 70 years is a long time to be in a foreign country where you are, are a displaced person, separated from your home, from your family, from your friends, isolated in a foreign pagan culture. Different language, different culture, different customs, different foods, different dress, different everything. Back home, your home has been destroyed. Totally, completely devastated. When the Babylonians left Jerusalem, they said not one stone was left on top of another. And it had been burned with fire. And it was a complete desolate wasteland. Uh, remnants of, be like an archaeological dig, I suppose. You go out there in the middle of nowhere and you've got the, the stumps of buildings and things like that. And that's about it. Um, Everything's grown up, the weeds, everything. Wild animals are back in. You have to watch where you step because of the scorpions and the snakes and all of that. Jackals and coyotes run there at night. It's a pretty desolate place. So they get to go home, those who want to. And more than that, um, there's been a change in government during this 70 years. A whole different culture comes in. And they're letting everybody who wants to go home. And so a lot of people went, a lot of people didn't. But those who went back had to start rebuilding. When they started to rebuild, they began to make a significant change. Progress was being made. And the problem was they had enemies in the surrounding areas who opposed everything that they did and everything that they were. And so you're trying to rebuild, and all the surrounding cultures completely surrounding you are all antagonistic toward you. So finally, God sends a man by the name of Nehemiah after the people had been there for quite a while. And God was going to give a task to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the city walls and make it a distinct um, political entity again with um, protections and defenses and all of that. And that brought a lot of derision. In Nehemiah chapter 4, Sanballat was the head of the opposition. Um, he lived in Samaria. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? And here's the main question. Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? We tend to think that stones are going to last forever, but they don't. Uh, stones get worn down. And certain stones, when you heat them with fire, they dissolve. They become crumbly. Um, part of the smelting process for iron is burning limestone. Um, and so you've got this kind of thing that um, if you have a, a stone that you're building with and you burn it with a hot fire, then it weakens that stone. It blackens it and it weakens it. And for most people, not much good anymore. Well, when Nehemiah gets back, he finds the city walls all tumbled down. 
the gates and all of that have been burned with fire. And so Sanballat here is ridiculing him. Can he make those stones come back to life, <clears throat> burned as they are? So there was a great city there. There was a temple at one time. Uh, palaces that were things that people would travel for a long way and be impressed by the palaces that Solomon had built and had been upgraded and expanded over the years. <clears throat> and the temple was one of the wonders of the world. Uh, people would go for a long ways to see this place. Pretty impressive, but now everything desolate and broken and burned. Uh, nothing there to build with. And yet here's Nehemiah and his men building, rebuilding the walls. Oftentimes, even in our own lives, we look around and we think, man, what a mess. Um, broken and burned and devastated and crumbling, strength gone, hope gone, vision gone. And the question that Sanballat asks is a good one. Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus had told a parable about people who build, which is what people of Nehemiah's day were doing. And he said there's a, a difference. The only difference between the two builders in the parable is one heard the word of the Lord and put it into practice. One heard the word of the Lord and did not put it into practice. And uh, I like the analogy that says... Um, reading the scriptures and not putting it into practice is like chewing your food without swallowing. And so here these men were, Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 24. It's a parable that we're all familiar with, the wise and the foolish builder. The one who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice is like the wise man. He built his house on the rock. It's solid. It's firm. It's bedrock. It's not going to go anywhere. The foolish man heard the words of Jesus, did not take it to heart, and did not put it into practice. Only difference. They both heard, they both understood. One lived it out, and one did not. And then the storms came. And you know that when the storms came, the foolish man who built his house on the sand, his house was totally and irrecoverably destroyed, flat like a tsunami had come in and wiped the slate clean, gone. The man who built his house on the rock, putting into practice what he knew to be the word of God, his house stood firm. Now, it was buffeted, it was lashed with the storms as well, but no lasting damage. Later on in Matthew 16, Jesus is on a retreat with the disciples but Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is asking, what do, who are people saying the Son of Man is? What are they saying about Jesus? What's the response uh, to the ministry, the revelations, the miracles, the teachings that Jesus was doing and giving? And so they said, well, you know, it's quite a stir here. Uh, some think that you're John the Baptist, come back. Um, others say maybe you're Elijah. Others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So all of that pretty much is good news. They think, at, at least, you're one of the great holy men of old. Uh, you're like one of the Old Testament prophets, powerful men of God who were greatly used by him. 
And so Jesus says a lot about you, the 12. What about you? Uh, what do you think? And it's at that point that the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Simon was his name. Peter was his name in a different language. It means a rock, a stone. And he says, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So, Peter, you're the rock. That's what your name means. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. But the church of the living God is not built on any human or any human institution. It is not. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, he's going to tell us who the rock is. And he's telling us why he's come. Isaiah 28, the people of his land in Isaiah's day, this was before they fell to the Babylonians, but it was coming. They are faced with a political and military threat that they cannot meet. And so they have an option. They can enter into a covenant with the people who are opposing them, or they can hire mercenary soldiers from another country to come and deliver them, or they can look to God. God invites them, look to me, and I will provide for you. But the king, he can see the armies coming, and he cannot see God. And so he enters into a covenant with another more powerful military power, kingdom of Assyria. And these people will come in, and these people that he makes the covenant with eventually are going to be the ones who destroys the whole northern kingdom and puts the southern kingdom at, at great risk. So those who he covets and buys as his special allies become his fiercest enemies. So they say we've made a covenant with death because we've made this alliance. God says that covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with the grave will not stand and when the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, you will be beaten down and it will carry you away. But the alternative is, verse 16, the sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts in him will never be dismayed. Precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And he's going to be the cornerstone, the foundation for our times. So when Jesus is talking to Peter, Peter's not the stone on which the church rests. The stone on which the church rests is you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's he is the stone. I know that uh, a lot of people question that kind of, of an interpretation there. 
But what Jesus is telling Peter is this revelation to you is the foundation of the church and it's your only hope, Peter. I'm going to give you the kingdom of heaven because you're not going to get in any other way. He didn't have a ticket. And Jesus is telling Peter, I am your ticket. Well, along with that comes an accountability and a responsibility. And he tells him, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So he's not saying, Peter, you're the only one and I'm going to build my church on you. The disciples didn't interpret it that way either, the rest of them, because they're still arguing over who's greatest. If Jesus had said, you're the one, that would have been the end. No more discussion. You're the best. You're the greatest. That's what he would have been saying. None of the disciples, none of them interpreted it that way. Peter himself didn't interpret it that way because he was arguing along with the rest. <laughs> no, it's me. I'm the best. No, no, he likes me better than you. Um, so the disciples themselves didn't interpret it that way. They're still arguing. And in the book of Acts, Acts 15, who's the head of the church in the book of Acts? Church of Jerusalem, the mother church. Who's the, who's the, is it Peter? No, it's not Peter. He wasn't the head of the church. Head of the church in Jerusalem was James. And Peter submitted himself to James and the rest of the body. So Jesus, though, gives him this authority. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It's not just for him. It's singular here. But later on, when he talks to all the disciples, he tells them all the same thing. God gives them all the same authority. So God gives this great honor. He gives this blessing to Peter because God had revealed it to Peter. And to make certain Peter understood, Jesus said, you got to understand, Peter, this did not come apart. You didn't understand this because you're so clever, because you're so intelligent, because you're so gifted. This came because God chose to reveal it to you. You wouldn't have understood this. You wouldn't have thought of that in a million years. God showed it to you, and that's the only reason you knew but I'm going to give you, you're blessed for that, and I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom here. So what does Peter do with this newfound authority? The very first thing he does, what does he do? Come on, y'all know this. First thing that, Jesus, that Peter does. <laughs> first thing he does is he rebukes Jesus. Peter rebuking Jesus. Now, the rock on which the, the church is built is Jesus. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And it's on that rock. And the Old Testament is full of that kind of an analogy. God is a rock on him we stand. The Lord is our rock. He is the security, the source of strength, our protector, our refuge that we go to. Our God is our rock. So we get to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now here Peter, the rock, 
is going to explain his position in the church, the position of Christ, and your position in mine as well. First Peter chapter 2. He says, talking to Christian people now, and this is one of the general epistles that's written to the church everywhere. As you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living stone on which the church is built. He is the foundation. The good news of the gospel is that by his grace, he makes Peter, the rock, and you and me into living stones as well. I thought about that and I thought maybe he's telling me I have a hard head. (laughs) But what he's saying is that he's able to take of these burned, weakened stones and build a temple for the living God. And many of us are broken and burned and desolate and hopeless. And they're the ones that God chooses to make living stones in answer to Sanballat's jest and his mockery. God can take the rejects, the worst of the worst, the broken, the discarded, the ones that nobody else would have. God will take them and he will bring glory and honor and praise to the living God. That gives me hope. So not only is Jesus the living stone, he takes us broken and discarded. And he takes us like living stones and he builds us. God is the architect. We don't build any way we want. So however many people in this room, if each of us decided to to build something and each of us come with his or her own plan and we all got together and I'm doing mine according to my plan, you're doing yours according to your plan, over there they're doing theirs according to their plan and it's all going to be one big building. What's it going to look like? Like the U.S. government. Oh, no. <laughs> it won't look that bad. But it, it, uh, God is the architect, and he's the designer, and he builds us all together in a harmon- harmonious unity. And he's the only one that can bring that unity to, to such disseparate people like us, all of us. Every one of us, and every one of us is important in God's economy. So he's building us into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We're all priests in God's kingdom. Priests, people who stand before God on behalf of others, people who stand before others on God's behalf. Every one of us priesthood of all believers. It's one of the great Reformation doctrines that came out of the 1500s. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what are our spiritual sacrifices? Well, the fruit of our lips bringing praise to God, not curses, not condemnation, not judgment, bringing praises to God. Not accusations against other people, uh, not pointing of fingers, sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, bringing praise to God. 
And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, we present our bodies as living sacrifices. Our bodies given to the Lord. Those kinds of sacrifices are acceptable to God. The kind that says in every situation, not my will, but yours be done, and then gets up and lives that out. So, Peter quotes here from Isaiah 28, I lay in Zion a a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him, that's not Peter. The one who trusts in him, that's Jesus Christ, will not be dismayed will not be put to shame. Now you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, he is the stone the builders rejected, but he has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So those who reject Christ as the foundation, he becomes a stumbling stone and we build our house on the sand. And then why should we be surprised when the storms come and it all collapses? Why does that surprise us? When the storms come and our house falls in, if we haven't built on the rock of Jesus Christ, if we've built to do our own thing, that's a house built on sand. It may look nice. It may look imposing and powerful. But when the storm is passed, there's nothing left. But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood. Not only are you a priest, you're a royal priest. You're a king and a priest. You're a queen and a priest. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God because we're good people or for our benefit so we can have an easy time in life. No, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So the natural response is praise and thanksgiving and worship. If that is not in our hearts and lives, no praise, no thanksgiving, no worship, it's because we do not know him or what he has done for us. We can know about him, but that's not the same as knowing him. If we know him, and understand what he has done for us and is doing for us even today, our hearts would be filled with praise and thanksgiving and worship. And John's going to tell us later on, perfect love casts out fear, all fear. We don't have to, to fear about what tomorrow brings. We don't have to fear what the past has been. We don't have to fear what's happening to us today. We don't have to fear about anything, that's any threat that comes. Because if we understand that God loves us, what do we have to fear? Paul earlier has written to some of the other churches and he said, if God's before us, who can be against us? If God's on your side, where's the threat? Where's the fear? Where's the anxiety? Where's the hopelessness, the despair? Where's the depression if God's with you? Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. So since we are a people of God, we need to help each other. Uh, one stone doesn't make a temple. So you can be a Lone Ranger Christian if you want, but your temple is going to be very, very small. And you can't even build a room with one stone. We need each other. It's part of being the people of God. But we're built, the glue that holds us together, we're built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is the glue that binds us together. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, tells us what God's doing. In verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, like Derek was sharing, God's building. Then verse 11, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. He's the foundation. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives within you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. You are sacred. You are sacred because of the presence of Christ in us. We're not sacred wholly because of ourselves or our good works or our good intentions. We are sacred because of the presence of Christ who is holy. If he is holy and he is in us, we become holy by his holiness. And if he is not in us, there's nothing, nothing we can do to become holy. It's his presence that makes us holy. God is building us individually and collectively into a spiritual house, and you are that house. Later on in chapter 6, Paul says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Bought at a price. The blood of the living Lord. So he continues to say this throughout um, Scripture. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, we are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, the church is, the, is God's temple. We are that temple. And God is using spiritual stones, that's you and me individually, to build a temple of praise and worship to God. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the blood of Jesus Christ, who lays the foundation for us, one that we can count on and look to for security and strength and hope and stability. 
when all around us is shaking. We're so grateful that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to realize who we are and understand the calling that you've placed upon us. Our very bodies become the temple of the living God. And that's what we were created for. And so we give you thanks, Lord, for your faithfulness, your mercy and grace in reaching down to us, broken and destroyed, and you make us into living stones like you. So we thank you and we praise you, and you, we pray that you would work that deep within us. In Jesus' name, amen.